Our passage for this morning is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through chapter 4, verse 4. 2 Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles. There are three pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Okay, Those are the pastoral epistles written by Paul to Timothy, his protege, the church at Ephesus. These are very pastoral, hence the reason they're called pastoral epistles, which is a fancy word for letters. These are pastoral letters. They are written to a pastor to kind of understand how the church should work in certain doctrinal things from Paul to his disciple Timothy. So this is the second of his letters, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. We'll read down through chapter 4, verse 4. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This week we're talking about what is the Bible. Last week was what is the gospel. This week is what is the Bible. And this is kind of these two standalone sermons are just basically trying to get across some ideas and that we need to have unity around as a church in order for the church to truly be a church. If the church isn't unified on its understanding of what the gospel is, it's hard to call it an actual church. It's more just a gathering of different people. So we're trying to... I'm trying to throw out here some things to have unity around. What is the gospel that was last week? This week is what is the Bible? What is this book? And how are we to think of it and have unity around it? And without that, we kind of are lost. We don't, we're lost in what we are doing. J.C. Ryle is a writer from a hundred years or so ago, a couple hundred years ago, says this about the Bible. Says, I quote, if Christians have no divine book to turn to, to uh, turn to as the warrant of their doctrine and practice, they have no solid ground for present peace or hope and no right to claim the attention of mankind. They are building on a quicksand and their faith is vain. We ought to be able to say boldly, we are what we are and we do what we do. Because we have here a book which we believe to be the Word of God. J.C. Ryle writing very convincingly, if we don't have this book, if we don't have a divine book to turn to, to warrant or to justify our doctrine and our practice, if we don't have some authority that we are getting this from, we have no solid ground for present peace or hope, and we have no right to claim the attention of mankind. 
when we say an unreached people group that we want them to hear the gospel message, this is a gospel message that is declared to us and shown to us in this book. If this is not an authoritative, divinely given book, we really have no right to say people in Malaysia, unreached people group, need to hear this book. We have no right to be able to say this should capture their attention. If we do not claim this is a divine book, we ought to, though, be able to say we are what we are, Christians. We are what we are, a Christian church. And we do what we do because we have here a book which we believe to be the Word of God. So what is the Bible? There's uh, doctrinal statements that are out there, and this is, they all basically say something along this lines when it comes to what are the Scriptures. They say something like this. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, are the inspired Word of God, without error, in the original manuscripts. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament, are the inspired Word of God without error in the original manuscripts. 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament letters, we affirm are the inspired, without error, Word of God. We use fancy words like infallible, Inerrant. Now, this is, this is me putting my cards out on the table for you all to see. Where is Darren coming from? Why is Darren, hopefully you have the thought in your head, why is Darren talking out of the Bible so much? Why are we just reading the Bible on a Sunday morning service? I'm putting my cards out on the table for you that this is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And those are just fancy words for the Bible cannot err and the Bible does not err. And all that it affirms, it does so as the Word of God. The 39 books of the Old Testament that we have in our Bible are the Old Testament, are the books that Jesus would have recognized as His Bible. Uh, There are other books that are out there that are called the Apocrypha, that are Jewish history books, But Jesus and the other disciples did not count those as authoritative books of the Bible. And then continuing on from those 39, we have the 27 letters of the New Testament, all having a certain apostolicity to them, which is a fancy word for they're all either written by an apostle or by somebody closely connected to an apostle. Like Mark is written by Mark who knew Peter. He got all his information from Peter the Apostle. Uh, um, That's a good example of Luke is another example of a Gospel writer who knew the Apostle Paul. And so there's there's apostolicity to all of these books written either by an Apostle or by someone close to the Apostle. God, and we have many places in our New Testament where they reference the Old Testament as an authoritative word. If you read through the Old Testament, many places you'll see, thus says the Lord. And there's this idea coming out loud and clear, hundreds of places in the Old Testament, that God is a God who speaks. God is a God who communicates. And so they wrote these communications down. They took down record as inspired and authoritative word of God to share to the generations coming after them that they might know who this God is. The New Testament writers quote the Old Testament 
many, 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 many times as the authoritative word. And also, the New Testament writers, it's interesting, you can go to, um, for, uh, we can go to 2 Peter, where Paul, or Peter is writing there about Paul's writings, and he compares Paul's writings, he says, some of them are difficult to understand, and people twist them, Paul's writings, as they do the other scriptures. That the New Testament, Peter there, is equating the writings of Paul along with the other scriptures. He's saying what Paul is writing is inspired and given by God in the same way the Old Testament scriptures were. Likewise, uh, in in 2 Timothy, I think, let me see. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes of a couple places he quotes scripture. And he quotes an Old Testament passage. And he quotes from the Gospel of Luke as an authoritative scripture. This book is the Word of God. So when we talk about what is the Bible, we want to just basically say that this book is the Word of God. And because God is perfect and God is without error, therefore this book, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is given to us without error. It's, it's, a, it's quite a wonder. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing concept to think about that God who created everything doesn't leave us in the dark about who He is, doesn't leave us in the dark about what he has done, doesn't leave us in in the dark about why the world is the way that it is, doesn't leave us in the dark about what's going to happen next, doesn't leave you in dark about the very state of your own soul and then how to find justification. It doesn't leave you in the dark. God communicates. What a grace it is that God communicates. God has spoken, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chosen men wrote down that we could read and hear God's voice. Now, the minute I start talking about this being God's inerrant, infallible word, a thousand questions come up, and they're good questions. If you have questions about your Bible, we had some in the Sunday school class just this morning. They're good questions. I want to know your questions. I, and I, that's part of the reason why we have that little section in your insert for you to write down, but what about this? I've heard this about the Bible. We don't have time this morning to, to address every objection that there comes about the Bible. But let me just take time to say a couple of things about a few of them. Believing that this is the Word of God leaves me confident that we can ask the questions and we'll be fine with the answers that we come up with. Here are a few of the questions that people have, or statements people make. People say things like the Bible is full of errors. You've heard this before, maybe. The Bible is full of errors. And what they are doing when they say the Bible is full of errors, they're telling a half-truth. When we say that the the Holy Scripture is the 66 books of the Old and the New Testament given by the inspiration of God and without error in the original manuscripts is what we say. Because the original manuscripts that they wrote down were without error. And what we have now is none of the original manuscripts. What we have now are copies. But listen, what we have now are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. And these copies, not done back here on a Xerox. Copies done by hand over and over and over and over again. And anytime you make thousands and thousands of copies, what do you end up with by hand? You end up with a lot of variants. I would call them not errors. I would call them variants. But the fact that we have so many copies is a proof and a, and a reassurance 
that it's easier to find what the original was. Okay? So we should be confident. You don't have to go through all, I've done it, I find it interesting, and I'd love to walk through it with you about how this book is the book that was written by the original authors. But we have all these variants that are out there, but because we have so many copies, we are able to get back with incredible accuracy the words that were originally recorded down for us. The idea of the Bible is full of errors, has tons of variants. Well, it does, but because we have so many copies, we're able to understand and know what was the original writing. Those who say the Bible is sometimes missing books, they are, they are denying and, and ignoring the scrutiny that the books with which we have in here have gone through. The scrutiny. They were not unaware of uh, other writings that were out there that did not hold up to the standard of Scripture. They were aware of them, and they kept them out of the canon, out of the gathering of the Bible. Um, I could go on, but we don't need to. I have, if you have questions, please do. Because at the end of the day, what my uh, scientific and scientific proofs are not going to be the convincing issue for you. Now, they, they are good, and we want to have them. But at the end of the day, when you open this book up and the Word of God reads you, there's a certain undeniability to this being the Word of God. The Bible doesn't just contain God's Word. It is God's Word. Some people make the argument that, well, this book contains. And so what they're saying is that, well, this part right here that I like, (laughs) that's the part that's God's Word. And the rest of it, that's all mistakes. But this part, this isn't a container. It doesn't just contain God's Word. This is God's Word to His people. Okay? So, It all comes down to authority. Who gets the say? If you come to Scripture with your thoughts about what it should say and what it shouldn't say and then judge it from there, it's not God you believe, it is yourself. If you come, this, you know, I, here's how I think life should work. Here's the four main things I think are truths. And I'm going to bring them to the Bible. And where the Bible says the things that I want it to say, I agree with it. And then where the Bible doesn't say the things I don't want it to say, I disagree with it. It isn't God you believe. It isn't the Bible believe. It's yourself. You think you are the sole authority over life and reality. You are in your arrogance saying that you are the sole authority on life. Who gets the say in your life? Who gets to say? Who has the power? Augustine says this. He says, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. Say the same thing about the Bible. If you accept what you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it's not the Bible believe you believe in, it's yourself. That's a very dangerous place to be. For most in our culture today, the authority is just basically whatever we want. We are the chief and sole authority of our own lives. It's why we hate the because I say so argument. Has anybody ever gone through that? You know, I've got a toddler now. And so those of you who've been around children, you're, you know the because I say so argument that you want them to do something and they want to have a scientific 15 point like uh, scholarly essay on why they should do what you want them to do. And you're like, just do it because I say so. I've done the research. I know what it is. Just on the authority, just do it. Uh, I was trying to think of a good example. This is the only one I could think of. 
But um, so I, I used to golf more than I do now, but dad brought me up, of course, on the golf course like you're supposed to be. And, and uh, dad's a good golfer, and I'm, I'm, I sometimes golf. And so uh, I was having a problem, but dad, he's gone through, he's, you know, he's wrestled with lots of his own problems. He has some authority on the issue. If you've got a bad golf swing, he, he, can, he can work with you. But I was, this is a bore you that don't, know, don't like golf, but uh, sorry, my apologies. I was swinging, and uh, everything I was doing was blocking it out, which is just to say I would swing and hit the ball, and everything would go straight right. Okay, maybe you've golfed before, you've experienced this problem. So to my knowledge, what I was going to do is I'm going to aim further left. Makes sense, right? So I'd go further left, and I would swing, and things would they go further. And the further left I pointed my feet, the further right the ball went over and over again. And so Dad comes up and he says, do you want my help? And of course, because I'm a very smart high school... No, not really. <laughs> I don't really know. Who are you? To, you know, I didn't want his help. But of course, he says, just listen. Why should I listen to you? Well, basically, because I know what I'm doing and you should listen to me. And Dad said, instead of opening your stance up, why don't you just close your stance like this? And I, I didn't like it because I thought, because I don't want my dad to be right. But I did it. And you know what happened? You can guess, right? The ball went straight as a string down the middle of the fairway. Okay? There's a because, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want to, you know, my, you know, I'm at that fun stage in life when your kids that I get to look forward to where your kids just think you don't know anything. You know, are you familiar with that? Maybe, was I the only bad kid? <laughs> I don't think so. We don't like the because I say so argument for various reasons, but at the end of the day, if the person has the authority, because I say so is a good reason. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I don't want to just give those who are in authority, just uh, especially fallen authority, blank slate, you know, like somehow the, we should not have to call our government to account because they say so. Those are fallen people in a fallen structure. But when it comes to God, when it comes to God, who is perfect, who's the creator of all things, when he says something about an issue, there is a sense in which it's like, well, God has said it. Who am, I going to argue, who am I to argue with the creator of everything that is? This is why we don't like the argument because I say so. But in the end, that's where we always end up with any sort of ultimate authority. Four characteristics of Scripture I want to just go through quickly when it comes to Scripture. Where there's, there's four main attributes or characteristics of Scripture that we should try to keep in the back of our mind. They are authority, clarity, sufficiency, and necessity, okay? Those are the four main attributes of Scripture. Authority, clarity, or perspicuity, if you like the old-timey language. Perspicuity, or clarity, sufficiency, and necessity. Authority. Scripture has authority. From our text this morning, um, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It is breathed out by Him, and it's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent. The Scripture has authority. Because the Bible is the written Word of God, written by the one who created it all and rules over it all, he has the final say. He has the insider knowledge. This is where the attack, the front line of the attack of Scripture comes from. The Bible has a specific message about what the condition of humanity is. Sinners in need of saving. And you know what this world doesn't like to hear? That we're sinners in need of saving. 
And so therefore, the easiest answer is just to say, I don't think this book is right. (laughs) Isn't that an easy answer? If this book says I'm a sinner in need of saving, that I'm condemned to hell in my sins, I don't want to hear that. No one wants to hear that. So what's the easy thing? I think that part of the Bible is probably wrong. Well, (laughs) no. The Bible has authority. This is God's word to us. Most people don't want to have to admit that. So in their depravity and their sinfulness, we ignore or they ignore or we ignore God's word and believe ourselves instead. You know, the Bible has a position on sin. The Bible has a position on sin. It tells us to love our neighbor, to serve those around us. It tells us to forgive. And how many times have you in your life been told you need to forgive and it's a command from Scripture to forgive as God in Christ forgave you and you might kind of say in the back of your head, I'm not sure that part's really authoritative over me. God doesn't know what this person did to me. No, Scripture has authority. It tells us how to live. It tells us how to handle alcohol. Do not be filled with wine, which is debauchery. It's what the Scripture says. And how many in our culture, in our community, think, well, that's a part that I think I'm going to question because I want to live with alcohol the way that I want to. It tells us what healthy sexuality looks like. It tells us what the sexual ethic is. And our culture is running wild and wants to have nothing to do with this book's, God's words about human sexuality because it's not what they want to do. Bible tells us how to handle our money. And on and on and on and on we could go. And for our culture, the easiest answer is just to say, I don't think this book has the authority. But this book, we as Christians, as a Christian church, have to take a stance on this book is God's word. And because God does not err, therefore this book does not err. The Bible has authority. We, I, sometimes I, you know, it's just, we should live like this. This book is here and we're here. Oftentimes we try to live like this. The Bible maybe is on equal par with us. I have great ideas. This says some great things. Let's bring all of our great thoughts together and that's how we're going to get to God. No, this book is above us. This book is the window through which we see God. This book is not God, but this is a window through which we see who God is and what he has done. The Bible has authority. It has clarity. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates on your law day and night. Blessed is the man who meditates on his word day and night. Deuteronomy 6 says to teach our children. Talk of them sitting, walking, lying down, and rising. The Bible has clarity. And the reason why I want to say that is because I want you all to have confidence that God speaks, it has authority, and you can get it. You can understand it. This book has clarity. There are, there are people out there who teach this book like it's some sort of code. You've got to have the special decoder ring to kind of understand. No. This is God's communication to you. You can go home today, read this book, and understand the general idea of what God is trying to say to you. This book has clarity. We should not be people afraid of this book. It's clear what God has done in history, creation, fall, all the way through redemption, culminating in Christ on the cross, the birth of the new church, the epistles written out to the church, and what's going to come, what's coming later on in Revelation. Now that gets interesting in its pictures, but the general idea, Christ is going to return. The Bible has clarity. The Bible has clarity. The Bible is sufficient. 
when it says here in 2 Timothy 3.16, the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All you need to know is found here. The book, the Bible is sufficient. It does not say everything you want to know, okay? So there are going to be a ton of questions you're going to be able to come up with that this doesn't give specific answers to. It doesn't tell you all you want to know, but it does tell you all you need to know. It is sufficient, and the Bible has necessity. If God were not to tell us of the gospel through this book, how would we understand the state that we're in? How would we understand what who to believe in, how to trust in Christ, how to be reconciled to God? The Bible has necessity. It's why we do great things in translating this book into native languages so that people can read this book and understand what God has done for them, especially through Christ. Four characteristics, okay? So authority, clarity, perspicuity, sufficiency, necessity. Okay, so that's, that's where we are with... And that's my cards putting out before you on what God's Word is. Now... We should invest, because this is God's word, we should invest great amounts of our efforts getting to know what it says and working long and hard to really get what it says. When I come out here and say, we need to learn this book, we need to know this book, this isn't about getting some sort of diploma on your wall of, yeah, I've read that chapter, I understand it. Understanding is one thing, you know, in your head, but getting it in your guts, so to speak, is another thing. That's, that's the way the Bible would talk about. Uh, in, your, in your belly, getting it is another thing. I have this, this dichotomy that I, I refer to for my own uh, thinking, and it's, it's I want to be knowing truly and truly knowing. No, I know those are the same words, but knowing truly and truly knowing. We want our knowledge of God to be true. We want to know Him truly, which is found in His Word. We want to know Him truly. But not only that, we want to truly know Him. And there's a difference there between having knowledge that is true, but then truly knowing. You know Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. I hope he was the 16th. He's the 16th president of the United States. But do you know Abraham Lincoln? There's a, and, and the reality is, I think both of these things grow at the same time. As you grow in your knowledge of who God and who He truly is, your true knowledge of, what I can't believe this is who God is. They grow together. Understanding who God is and His truth and then really getting who God is, they grow together. Application. So, we, we, we care about messages when they come to us. Three, three kinds of messages we care about. We care about a message that comes with authority. If you walk up to the power station at the end of, Fillmore Street here by the depot, and the signs say, warning, risk of electrocution, that's a message to you from authority. And you kind of listen to it, don't you? Because when a message comes from an authority, well, you should listen. My family came back, they were the ones that were all crammed over here last week from California, and they went to go walk on a nature trail, which has just been repaved, it's very nice, but there's a sign still sitting there, and what does the sign say? It says, road closed. And because they don't know that we're you know, Ringo County, and probably you can ignore it and just be safe on your own. They listen to authority. They're like, well, it's closed. And they, they turn, because a message that comes from authority, you listen to. You listen to a message that comes with authority. If this message comes from the author of life, who has, no one has more authority than him, 
Shouldn't it be a message we listen to? Shouldn't it be a message we listen to? You listen to messages when they speak of what's coming. How many people in here could give me a forecast of what the rest of the week's going to be like when it comes to the weather? There's a lot of you probably that I could go through. It's going to be cooler this week or something. Y'all have an opinion that we care about what's coming. And so when news is about what's next, we care. When news is about what's next. How many listened when and the second Sunday of next week, we're going to have what? A potluck. So we talked about what's coming in food. You probably all remember that because it's news about what's coming. Well, this gives us news about what's coming in the highest sense. Christ's returning, the judgment that's coming, your eternal state. This gives us news of ultimate consequence. If we listen to news about coming about potlucks, shouldn't we listen to the news about what's ultimately coming for all of us and for the whole world? We should. And you listen to news when it comes from a loved one. You listen to news when it comes from a loved one or for someone that you love. Maybe some of you are like this, but I've got... Uh, a shoebox, couple shoeboxes in my closet of notes that Darla and I passed back and forth in high school. We've got them collected because they're notes from someone that you love. And when you have words from someone that you love, when someone passes away and you find old letters of theirs, when, they, when they've died and they're not here to hear anymore, and you get a letter from them, that means something because it's a letter from a loved one. This declares to us the greatest love that there is. No love has any man like this. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. This is what Christ has done for us. This book declares a love that is not to be known anywhere else in the world, that God would incarnate, become flesh, Jesus Christ, live the life we all should have lived, die the death that we deserve, be resurrected for our justification, so that through repentance and faith, we could be reconciled, forgiven by grace, by grace, not because we've earned it, but because he has done it, there is no greater message of love than what this book has and what God has done for you. Authority, what's coming next, the greatest love ever known. When messages come like that, we should listen. We should listen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book to us, and I pray, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that rejoice in all that you've done for us in Christ. Give us ears to hear that we would, that our joy would be full in all that you are for us. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.